Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage Podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the development of teamwork, leadership, and culture. Hi, I'm the founder of the podcast, Greg Gregory, certified speaking professional, and we're excited to uh, be getting into our fourth season shortly, and we've had over 60 episodes of the Teamwork Advantage. We invite you to go back and check out previous issues and listen to some great interviews. Today, we're fortunate to have with us a gentleman who is an expert and considered by many to be one of the leading professionals in recruiting in today's environment. And we've got a lot to talk about there because of everything that's going on. Bill Hummert is recognized nationally as a talent attraction expert. His 40 years of experience in recruiting nationwide across a wide spectrum of industries brings knowledge and experience that audience may simply easily assimilate right into their everyday practices. And that's going to be critical as we believe in giving you ideas you can use immediately. At different points in our professional lives, we may often find ourselves on one side or the other, the talent attraction side, and probably at some point in time, we were on the career seeking side. Bill's experience is unusual because he coaches managers on how to attract top candidates. And his 26 years of coaching uh, works with professional candidates in their career as well. People within the search industry have given him the moniker, the candidate whisperer. You might recognize his talent attraction clients from Transamerica, Trex Company, Asonia, The Washington Post, Hoodie Nuts, and Geico among them. Now, here's something interesting I did find out about Bill. He is left-handed, and he was forced to think outside of the box very early on in his life. And he's also applied, and I, Bill will talk about this possibly, I may want to join you on this, to uh, join Japanese billionaire Yosako Mezawa uh, on his SpaceX starship around the moon on the trip called Dear Moon in just a couple of years. His talent attraction, consultant, professional career search, speaker, and author of three career search books, including one coming out shortly. Folks, please, Welcome. Bill Humbert. Hi, Bill. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much. We're excited about this. And you and I have chatted a few times over the last few months and uh, connected on LinkedIn on several different occasions. And um, I'm fascinated by some of the material you've been putting out. And I'm excited to have you here. And I've just got a whole bunch of stuff I want to get into with you. So before we get into the crux of recruiting itself, how did you get there? How did you get to be in the recruiting side of things? Oh, you're going to love this story. <laughs> I was selling fertilizer in Frederick County, Maryland and Carroll County, Maryland. We lived up in New Windsor, Maryland at the time. Mm -hmm. It's one of those in-between jobs. I was in construction, decided I'm going to drive 65 miles to DC to be on construction sites. So I went to our neighbor who was a farmer and I networked with him and he said, well, you know, Danny Rook down the street is opening up a fertilizer sales business and he probably needs a sales guy. So I jumped in the car, told him that George told me to come down and see him. And he said, yeah, I do need a sales guy. 
And so he started talking to me about fertilizer and stuff. He said, you know what? Farmers all know that. And that was up in dairy country. And so he said, just go out this afternoon and talk to him about my business. Tell me what you learned. So I went out and this was in the, you know, 1981. And, and a lot of farmers were going out, you know, the small family farms were going out of business and selling. And so I just kept looking up the lanes. Finally, I found a lane where there was cars and trucks around. And I went up the lane and got out and it was about 4.30 in the afternoon. I started listening and there was a radio playing in an out, outbuilding over there. So I went in the outbuilding and I walked in uh, what turned out to be a milking parlor. And the farmer was literally on a three-legged stool cleaning the udder of a cow. And being a city kid, I grew up in the D.C. area. I walked right behind the cow and started talking to him about Danny's fertilizer business. Well, the tail went up, and, you know, and I saw dogs with their tails up and cats with their tails up. Not Had no special, <laughs> didn't have any special thing meaning for me. And fortunately, he looked up just in time to grab my shoulder, rip me out of the way, and then came the big shower. And he looked up and he said, city kid, huh? <laughs> and so I did that for a year and a half. It was fun. It was great meeting the, the different farmers in the area. And, 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 and we did well selling fertilizer. And one day somebody came up to me and he said, you know, you're pretty good in sales and you're really good with people. Have you ever thought about being a recruiter? And I said, no, why? And they said, you'd make a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I went, yes. So, you know, it's 40 years later and people still tell me I'm selling fertilizer. Okay. So you got into recruiting and then how did you get into from the recruiting side of it to being, uh, you know, known as an expert in recruiting and speaking about it and authoring three books now? Well, you know, any, any time you have uh, 40 years of experience, stuff happens along the way. And what I found was in the mid eighties, people were sending people who were out of work. Cause remember that was a really, we thought 2008 was bad. Uh, back in the eighties, it was much worse because not only did we have a recession, but we had inflation where loans were 15% for a car and a house. And oh, so I remember those, I was in the mortgage business in the eighties. So I remember those days. <laughs> there you go. You know it better than me. And, and so people were sending people who were out of work to me saying, hey, you're a recruiter. Can you help them? And, and so I started coaching them. I created in 1985 an absolutely killer salary negotiation pitch and uh, script. And so probably in the, oh boy, probably in the mid-90s, I started formally coaching people and, and getting paid for it. Awesome. And, yeah. So my recruiting model is very different. I work with one company at a time and I charge them a flat monthly fee. And that enables me to consult with them as well as recruit for them. Mm -hmm. And that's all the companies that you name with the exception of Geico. Geico is one of my few contingent uh, clients, but the rest of them were all with my consulting model. Okay. Okay. So, one of the challenges, of course, is, and you brought it up since you've been in the industry for so long, recruiting has totally changed. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, in the, in the mid-1980s, there was no such thing as the internet. 
You get into the early 90s, it was very rudimentary at best. And so we've watched it change to today where applications are done online and artificial intelligence is searching for keywords and things like that. And the way I understand a lot of it is those AI bots are now set to try and find reasons to kick an applicant out. Am I about right on that? <laughs> You're totally right. So here, think about this. Human resources is an administrative compliance function. Mm -hmm. Recruiting mirrors the, sell, the sales process line by line perfectly. Okay. Well, what do bureaucrats, administrators, compliance officers want to do? They want everybody to follow a nice, strict, clean process. The only problem is initially people were allowed to submit resumes online without filling out an application. And then probably around 2003, 2004, companies started requiring professionals to complete an application before they submit it. Well, that process then led to so-called artificial intelligence. Now, Greg, I refer to it as artificial, artificial intelligence. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy because let's say you're a Harvard University grad. Are you going to put high school diploma on your resume? I no, no, you won't because you got to be the theory says you got to be a high school grad to get it. Yeah, exactly. You've at least got to have a GED or something to get you there. Exactly. Well, here's the problem. If a company and most most companies job descriptions are terribly written, they're not just oh, poorly written, they're terribly terrible, written. Yeah. And and so now you have somebody who is putting their resume in and it's being matched against the keywords in a job description. And there's no way that a top performer is going to get a job in that job using that job description. And unless they hit all the keywords, unless they get lucky. But even if you hit, let's say you, the keyword is plan. Well, when you write a resume, you're supposed to write it in past tense, even the current job. Mm -hmm. And it, if you have planned with the D, E-D, you get kicked out. You get dinged because it doesn't understand that there are, it's different pieces of the same word. It's frustrating. You know, and it drives me crazy. And, I, and there is, so just, you know, your luck, your listeners are so lucky because I know how to get around it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's kind of get into that. If we can, I want to, I want to figure that out. So let's, let's look first on the company side, where do most companies go wrong in their recruiting process? You know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be very upset with me. They go wrong by putting recruiting in a compliance administrative organization in human resources. Right. And, and so how, how well do people in compliance organizations do sales? Yeah. 
They don't. <laughs> They're terrible at it, as a matter of fact. And, and worse yet, they don't even trust sales guys. So if they're lucky enough to hire a sales guy as a recruiter, they automatically stop trusting them their first day. So sales belongs over in the operations area because they're the ones feeling the pain, not HR. So that's the first place they go wrong. Okay. Uh, and that's a very fundamental first place, by the way. So if a company was smart enough to have the operations side taking care of that, the actual job person who's going to be working in that position or, or that, that manager's position, HR does need to get involved at some point. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so let's put the application where it belongs. Let's put it after a conversation with the candidate where there's mutual interest between the manager and the candidate. Then say the next step is to bring you in for an interview or do a Zoom call or something like that. Well, the challenge I see there is, and we'll, we'll get into this in a minute, is the great resignation. Right now, there are so many people trying to find up, up moving jobs, move, upwardly mobile jobs. So they're trying to get into that. And so there's so many applications. A manager can't sit and just look at a resume or look at anything and start to pull people out. What, what do they do? They network. Think of athletic directors. And I'll use something that happened here in Utah last spring. Okay. University of Utah fired their basketball coach. 11 days later, they hired a new basketball coach. So athletic directors have their list of top prospects that they want to contact if they need a new coach. Managers should do the same. They should be always out. You know, obviously they're managing, but they should be always out and aware of who the top performers are in their industry that they want to bring to their team. And now that's applicable for any level of the organization, or are you just referring to senior level? Any, any level. Why okay. not? You know, if you know somebody is a top performer over in another company in your industry, and I don't even think it has to be your industry, but at least in your field, mm -hmm. stay in touch with them and, you know, and then develop a relationship. And then, hey, you know, as soon as I get an opening, I'm going to give you a call. You get a little bump in compensation. And, we'll, you know, we have great benefits here. You, so you're selling them, right? Okay. And that's how you do it. That's okay. the best way. And that's the way it was done back in, you know, before HR got involved. Okay. And that's, that makes a lot of sense. So now we're starting to recruit. What, what's the best way for a manager or human, anybody within company A, what's the best way to determine if candidate B is a good cultural fit? Because one of the things we talk about on the teamwork advantage is teamwork, leadership, and culture. So there's got to be a cultural fit. And just because they're not a good fit in my company doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means they're not a fit in my company. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yep. So what's the, how can I tell if I'm hiring somebody who's a good cultural fit? I mean, obviously there's interviewing questions, but beyond that. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I listened to Jared Hummel's um, uh, interview podcast yep. with you. 
And he said, you know, I'm the one that talks to people about to try to get the, the cultural fit. Yep. Well, I'm almost finished with this book, Talking with Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. And in it, in the first couple of chapters, he talks about how the CIA hired a woman from Cuba to spy for them. What they didn't know for 20 years, and, you know, CIA, they vetted that person probably better than most companies. Yep. And they didn't know that she was a double spy. She was a spy for Castro. And what he talked about was that even the best people only get it right about 20% about cultural fit. Wow. So, so for me, the best way to determine, at least in my experience, is to conduct good reference checks. Now, Greg, <laughs> four times in 40 years, I've called one of the references of one of my candidates. And four times when I mentioned the name of the candidate, they burst out laughing. <laughs> and I went, oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and one of them laughed. And then she said, I fired her two weeks ago. I can't believe she used my name. Oh, okay. <sighs> There's so much legality involved, though. It's an interview. It's nothing more than an interview. But there are companies that will not want to say anything about a person. In other words, if somebody called me, I'm afraid if I say I fired them or I, they were not a good employee, they were not good, then that person might turn around at some point and sue me. Well, I mean, let's face it. I grew up in the D.C. area. I talked mm -hmm. to an attorney one day, and he said, Bill, here's a fact of life. Anybody can sue Anybody. anybody for any reason. The question is who's going to win. So as long as you're doing it for the purpose of determining if this person is a cultural fit mm -hmm. and you're not doing it to get even with them for some personal reason. And as long as you've got the backup to show why it is you let that person go or fired them. Okay. You're fine. Okay. That's, that's just a key thing. I know a lot of managers are kind of worried about saying they will only answer yes, he or she worked here from point A to point B. That's all they can say. Well, and what I tell my candidates, I need three references I can talk to. And they say, well, but my company, blah, blah, blah. And I go, I don't, if take, pick somebody who left your company, let me talk to them as well. I want somebody that I can talk to about your work and your work experience. Okay. And as the recruiter, that's what you're looking for. And that makes sense. Okay. So now let's talk about this thing called the great resignation and the transitions. And in particular, something in your new book that, that I find fascinating. And people are leaving and they're trying to find jobs. A lot of the people trying to find jobs right now um, and there's age ranges that go from the 20s all the way up. But I think the largest group that's trying to find jobs may be over 40, 45 years old. Am I, I don't know where they are today. I don't know the latest numbers. 
They're probably, I'm going to guess that the ones that are resigning by choice are probably in the 35 to 45 range, the majority. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the 50 year olds and above have too many financial responsibilities to just quit a job without a job. Uh, so my guess is that probably the majority of the, the ones resigning of that 4.6 million people or whatever it is now, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're ones in the 35 to 45 year old range because they don't have all of the financial responsibilities that the older people have. Okay. So let's talk about people finding jobs. We've talked about the company side. Let's talk about things that uh, a candidate can do today, uh, regardless of their age or wherever, because we, we know the, the AIs are a problem. So what should people be doing? So let's, let's get some of those um, nuggets of yours, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Sure. So let me give you a metric. The career transition industry. So Lee Hecht, Harrison, Wright Management, Challenger Gray Christmas, Waldron HR, they've measured how people have gotten jobs for 45 years. Yep. And what's really interesting is over those 45 years, it has been very consistent. 74 to 76% of all jobs are filled through networking. 8%. Let's repeat that again. 74 to 76% of all jobs are filled through networking. Regardless of the level. Regardless of the level, 8% have been filled by posting and praying somebody will actually see your resume. Okay, so that's 82% thereabouts. What about the other 18%? Oh, you know, some of them are related. I don't call that networking. <laughs> some of them. Um, nepotism there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, let's face it. Family owned companies. That happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them come from career fairs. Some of them. <laughs> I once recruited a woman in D.C. I was at the Washington Post, one of my great clients. And I spent time with the manager and then I went to lunch and when I'm at lunch, Greg, the antennae are up. Nah, that, that's not a very interesting conversation. Nah, that one's not very interesting. Some might this call one, that creepy. Okay. Well, yeah, stalking or something. But <laughs> this one over here was amazing because the woman had the exact experience that the Washington Post was looking for at that moment. And she just happened to be talking about her experience. She was talking to a recruiter at the next table. <laughs> Ah, (laughs) and so I'm just checking off mentally all the boxes. Right. And I thought I made a decision. If that recruiter is stupid enough to get up and leave her at the table, I'm going to reach over and introduce myself. And and almost on cue, Greg, he got up (laughs) and I went, this is awesome. And so I turned and I apologized to her for listening to her conversation. And I said, um, would you, uh, did he talk to you about working at the Washington Post? Now, understand this was 1987, roughly. 
The Washington Post at that time had no glass ceiling. Catherine Graham was yep. the publisher. Yep, there she was. And the smart women knew that. <laughs> and she, he's, she said, no. And I said, would you like to interview at the Washington Post? And she said, sure. And I went, okay, you passed that test. <laughs> and so I just asked her to fax me your resume that afternoon. And I said, are you available at nine o'clock tomorrow morning for an interview? And she said, yes. And I said, great, you've got an interview. Um, go in, talk to Dave at the reception desk or ask for Dave at the reception desk. He'll bring you up and he'll have you interview with his managers. And he was a director. And so she faxed me the resume. I had already called Dave to get time set up on his calendar. I said, she's perfect. And he said, okay, do you have a resume? So here you go. You don't have to have a resume to get an interview if you network in. And so I said, I will, but I don't now. And he said, well, get me the resume as soon as you can. I'll get the, the interview set up. And I, I did do something really stupid, though, Greg. Once I got the resume and forwarded on to him, he called me right away. And he said, You're, yeah, this is amazing. And so I called her to confirm her interview. And I said, by 11 o'clock, you will have an offer from the Washington Post. Now, that was kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I see that did it happen by 10 or not quite uh no it um so at 10 30 i got a call from dave and he said boy have you gotten me in trouble and i you know my my hard drive in my brain was spinning i'm thinking oh, why how she's perfect and he said she's interviewed with three of my female managers and each one of them wants to hire her. so i know i'm gonna have a fight fight on my hands and he's, he said, she's interviewing with another one right now. And she's going to want to hire her too. But and, she said she had, that's wild. Okay. And so he, um, he said to me, what do we need from a compensation perspective? And we talked about compensation and agreed on a number. And so <laughs> then he said, so good. Well, I'll call you after I extend the offer. And I said, oh, there is one more thing. He said, what's that? Uh, yesterday, I told her that you would extend her an offer before 11 o'clock. <laughs> he burst out laughing. <laughs> so he called me at five after 11, said she came in. I asked her if she had any questions. She said, no, the managers answered all of my questions. I'm good. He said, you want to work here? And he, she went, absolutely. And he extended the offer. And he said it was five minutes to 11. And he said, and she, I looked at my watch when she accepted, and it was two minutes to 11. <laughs> and so I said, good job. Well, she called me a quarter after 11. She's going, how did you know they were going to extend an offer to me by 11? And I said, I know my client. All and she's about. Yep. And so it's networking. You know, mm -hmm. I was a recruiter, but I happened to just happened to overhear that conversation mm -hmm. at lunch. So let's let's talk a little bit now. Obviously, that was 1987. That's a long time ago. Things have totally changed, yet networking really has not. So I get that. So what can I do if I am trying to find a job today? And let's now say, uh, again, forget the age, because I know you've got a new book coming out. First off, tell us about the new book. You know, Greg, I'm really excited about the new book. It's Expect Success 
the science of the over 50 career search. And most people don't think of career searches as being scientific, mm -hmm. correct? But there's a lot of different sciences involved. First of all, psychology, sociology, that's the cultural fit side of things, computer science, <laughs> and also mathematical science. Okay. So there are four different sciences involved in your career search. And when you're over 50, boy, you better understand that because that's going to impact your search. All right. So I, we were talking before we got on the air here and you read me. And so I want you to read it again, if you can the introduction in your new book, because I kind of found that fascinating. So if you just want to take a moment and read us the introduction from your new book and go ahead and title it again. Expect success, the science of the over 50 career search. And this is the first paragraph. Once upon a time, there was a group of brilliant 20 something and 30 something year olds. Some of them worked at companies with the names of Microsoft, Oracle, Apple, and LinkedIn. Many of them were managers who knew that 50-year-old workers were out of touch with their generation and their technology. Therefore, they did not hire them. Just as in those fairy tales, when princesses spin and time flies by, these 20-something and 30-somethings twirled in the January 1 to December 31 fiscal work world. Sadly, they awoke one day at age 50 with some new wrinkles. Then their company was reorganized or was re acquired, and they were laid off. They found new companies on Indeed where they applied, and new 20-somethings and 30-somethings in charge felt 50-somethings were suddenly out of touch. While they had valuable experience, they were not hired. Their new world was not the same as the one they just left, yet it was the same. So now let's talk about how all this comes in. We've talked about culture. We've got people now that are possibly in their 40s or 50s that are struggling, possibly to find a job full-time or part-time. Because I think some of those people have decided they just want to cut back and live life a little bit. How does all of this start to fit into the teamwork? of an organization. Um, what can I do? What can people do? I mean, we've talked about networking. What else can they do to really to get in? And I, I want to understand the talent attraction. We have to bring the right people in. Uh, Jim Collins in his book, uh, Good to Great, always talked about first who, then what. So I get that concept. So let's talk both on the recruiting side and being the recruited side. What are the things that we can do to make this match work? You know, that's the reason you need me, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> on either side. On both sides, exactly. That's the reason I'm a candidate whisperer. Create for, you have to create a team. And not just, oh, I got six direct reports. Unless they're working together as a team with the same goals, they're not a team. Yeah. There's six People can go get my definition of a team uh, right up front, an effective team. And it, I always say that 
a group of people working towards a common goal is a great start, but that's not a team. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So if you have a great team to begin with, Mm -hmm. and that team starts building a a reputation for being a great team and getting things done. In his book, Top Grading, How Leading Companies Win by Hiring, Coaching, and Keeping the Best People by Brad Smart. In this book, he talks about going at, uh, and you can see I've even marked pieces of it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, He talks about how the top performers or the top 10%, they want to work with the other top performers. And so that's part of the attraction is finding a team, get them working together as a strong team, and then finding the people to come and work with you becomes much easier because you build a reputation of having a great team. Okay. So that's the talent attraction side. It's easier to attract people when you've got a great team. When you've got a great leadership team in place, which is why places like Wegmans for years have been voted among the top places to work. Okay. Southwest yep. Airlines has been another one for many years. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So if you if your leadership team pushes its culture down through the organization and requires the managers to buy into that culture and become great leaders also, okay, then you have a reputation and then people want to come to work for you. Okay, that makes sense. Let's look at the other side. So now you're a candidate. And you want to go to work for that company. How do you find that team? Well, one way is to get on LinkedIn, type the name of the company, and there's a, a link that says show all employees on LinkedIn. You click that link and then you can filter. And you may be able to find, and probably in today's world, be able to find the manager of that organization, and then plus people who work there, some of whom may have worked at companies where you worked at previously. And you can you know, you link with them on LinkedIn and then you contact them and say, hey, I'd really, I'm really interested in working with you guys. How do we make this happen? Even if there's or, not an opening. Even if there's not an opening, because what, well, <laughs> so here you go. Companies are terrible about posting all of their positions. So you may look at the company, look at their positions and say, well, there's no opening. Well, there might be an opening in the budget. A couple of years ago, I was working with a a crypto security company and I was recruiting salespeople for them. And we found one that we really liked. We'd already found three. We found a fourth one that we really liked, but Neil didn't have money in the budget. So I, and this was August. And I said, well, who else has money in their budget to hire somebody? Maybe you can do a trade with them because if it's August, that's eight months into the budget year. Maybe they're not interested in hiring somebody and you can give them one of your hires for next year. And that's what he did. He found somebody like that. Sounds like we're doing an NFL draft here. We are. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> recruiter guy has fun when he does that. And we hired that woman and she's still there and having fun and making impacts. So, mm-hmm. so it's, you have to think out of the box, but if you want to hire that person, I got news for you. CEOs want the business to grow as fast as they can. And if you're a manager and you've got a top performer out there that you have an opportunity to pick up right now, the CEO is probably going to say, we'll find money. Okay. So this seems like kind of a, a silly question and a kind of an obvious answer. So let's just see if I'm, I'm maybe off base on the obviousness. When you hire the right people, that really has an impact on retention because they start to stay more. Uh, they get more engaged and things like that. So what can I do if I'm trying to recruit or what can I do if I am trying to get into a company to ensure that I've got that right culture fit? And, you know, we start to think, because tell me about the impact of it first off. What does the impact of hiring the right person mean long-term, not short-term? You increase productivity and profits. Okay. What, what does it do for the employees? Well, the employees love working with somebody who's a teammate, true teammate. Mm-hmm. And the stronger relationship as a teammate and as a team that you have, there's that huge potential that you'll keep that person there. Now, in your conversation with Keith Taylor, he talked about you have to let some of them go sometimes and let them grow. And, and mm-hmm. that's important because I can't tell you how many times, Greg, I've recruited somebody who said to me, I know the exact job I want and it's in my company, but my manager won't let me go there. Wow. And so I recruited them for somebody else. <laughs> so occasionally you got to let them go and grow and contribute maybe because by being a manager and growing their own high-performing mm-hmm. team. Now, you see, what you just described is something from a legendary NFL coach, uh, Bill Walsh, and how exactly. he recruited. Yep. Okay. But not just recruited players, but his coaches. And I've looked at this. It's been several years now. But through the genealogy, if you look at head coaches in the NFL today, so many of them got their roots, not directly from Walsh, but maybe a secondary or tertiary uh, leader down the line because he had that idea about letting people and build people to help them grow. You know, there's the exactly. old expression that says the only thing worse than uh, hiring somebody and training them and having them leave is not training them and keeping them yep. is, you know, that's, that's a huge challenge. So you've got employee retention is a benefit, but it can also if we help it and find them places, um, uh, positive attrition is the word I'm looking for here. Positive attrition within an organization so they can leapfrog within one company. That's a powerful tool. It is. Okay. It's amazing. And it's, it's so amazing how well it works. So let me ask this as we're getting t- a little tight on time. So I'm going to get ready and wrap up here a little bit. But people that are leaving today, Okay. Um, what are the trends that you're seeing on why they're leaving their organizations? Now, some of it I know is pandemic related. Let's get beyond that part. 
some of them are just tired of the manager. You know, there's a lot of poor managers out there. And unfortunately, you know, in my position, I'm able to see how they became managers. They were part of the rank and file. The manager left. The company needed a new manager. They thought this person was the best person in the rank and file. I'll we'll promote him or her. And then they don't give them any training on how to manage. Yeah. And that's probably the biggest problem that companies are facing. And, and it contributes greatly to the reason why people are leaving. So leadership training, management training is a key issue that companies should be focusing on during this pandemic. Absolutely. You know, you got to teach your managers to be empathetic, but smart about it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So it's got to be something where you as a manager understands where that person is coming from and understands their situation. And, and now as a result of the pandemic, people are working at home and showing that they can be successful working at home and not doing that one hour or one and a half hour commute. commute. Yeah. I had a commute when I was on a recruiting contract with MCI from New Windsor, Maryland, and that's up in North Central Maryland, all the way to Pentagon City. And I was on okay, the let, GW- Let's be real and talk. I know the area. So I know that commute. If they're driving that all the way in a morning rush hour, even leaving at 430 in the morning, that's a 90 minute commute. Unless it rains. One drop of rain falls, it's longer. Oh, yeah. Or <laughs> if they leave a half hour later, it goes to a two and a half hour commute. Exactly. And so I would, I can't tell you how many mornings, Greg, I was driving down to GW Parkway and the Georgetown and GW crew teams were out on the Potomac and they were going faster than me. (laughs) Yep. And so growing up in that area, I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah. And so, so what happens that takes so much time out of their personal life. And now they're at home, they're not doing that commute and they're being responsible and they are productive and more productive than they were before. And now the company says, you got to come back in. Well, who wants to go from being home to a three hour round trip commute? Okay. But I believe it's valuable from a team perspective that they get together in person regularly, maybe once a week. I can see that value. And you choose the day. Probably mm-hmm. Wednesday would be the best day. Yeah. And that's a lot. I still remember back in the uh, mid to late 80s when they first started allowing flex time. So people could come in as early as six in the morning, but they had core times that everybody had to be there. And I think that's kind of where we're heading. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. Uh a lot of stuff here. Oh, and by the way, I did want to bring this up. You know, you talked about the managers and leaders being empathetic. Um, before we got on air again, you and I were chatting about a mutual friend of ours who passed away this year, Mark Eaton, the seven foot four giant. And uh, we, of course, we had him as a guest on our podcast. And I was going back through and listening to Mark's book recently, uh, The Four Commitments, which is just an amazing book about management and leadership. You're going to pull a copy up right now, I bet. (laughs) In this book? That book right there, The Four Commitments. Uh, But uh, And Mark, of course, lives out there in Salt Lake City, where you are, the Park City area, uh, or lived there. 
And so, but in his, in his book, one of the things I took away from that was his two best managers and what made his career were two of his best managers, coaches, if you will, that actually believed in him and had a better belief in him than he did himself. And so being able to do that and drive is so quintessential for any leader because you want to make the whole team. And that ties it back to one of my great quotes, a rising tide raises all ships by John Kennedy. You know, when you think that direction about bringing everybody along for the ride, that's the strength in that. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Bill, tell us one more time the name of your book coming out, and it's coming out in just a few weeks. So Coming out in January, Expect Success, The Science of the Over 50 Career Search. And let's face it, that's, that's a huge factor in today's market. Bill, this has been absolutely enjoyable here. I appreciate the time you've given us, uh, the, the time to chat and learn. How can people reach you? I'm so easy, Greg. Recruiterguy.com. So if there's any question who the real recruiter is or recruiter guy is, it's mm-hmm. me. All right. So folks, that's recruiterguy.com. We'll make sure we have that in the notes as well for you. Um, Bill, again, thank you so much for everything. I appreciate the time you've given us. I know time is valuable and thank you so much for joining us on the Teamwork Advantage. You know, folks, the Teamwork Advantage is one of those podcasts that's designed to really help you a lot. And once a week with our Teamwork Advantage podcast, we're going to share skills with you that you can actually implement immediately. And Bill has definitely helped us with that here today. Until next week, remember, having a good day. Well, that's just being average. And when you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, we know you're not average. So go make today excellent and exceptional. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.